Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2005, director Ron Howard and star Russell Crowe gave the world an uplifting biopic about boxing's most tenacious fighter. In 2019, Buffalo Trace gives us a 90-proof bourbon that harkens back to an earlier age. The film is Cinderella Man. The whiskey is Ancient Ancient Age. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. This week we are looking at the 2005 film Cinderella Man. And we're also continuing our series called The Summer of Bourbon. So if you weren't here last week, we are doing six straight weeks of bourbon. Brad and I used to live in Kentucky. We have an affinity for bourbon. Look, we're trying to break into scotch, guys, but there's just something about the sweet, sweet nectar of the state of Kentucky. Of the gods. <laughs> the nectar of the gods. <laughs> that is bourbon whiskey. So today we're going to be looking at Ancient Ancient Age from Buffalo Trace. But let's get into our movie. This movie, 2005, directed by Ron Howard. Brad, had you ever seen Cinderella Man? I saw Cinderella Man, I think, in theaters. If not, I saw it like right when it came to, I don't know, what was it back then? VHS? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 <laughs> DVD. Yeah. DVD. Yeah. Laserdisc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this movie, 2005, uh, directed by Ron Howard, starring Russell Crowe, Renee Zellweger. Paul Giamatti? Paul Giamatti. This movie won zero Oscars and was only nominated for three Oscars. What was it nominated for? Best Supporting Actor for Giamatti. Yes. Because, of course. Yeah. Uh, best Editing and Best Makeup. Can I nominate Paul Giamatti for Greatest Supporting Actor of all time. In the history of movies. He reminds me, if I say J.K. Simmons, do you know who I'm talking oh. about? He won oh, an Oscar a couple J.K. Yeah. Simmons, man. Whiplash. Giamatti, I feel like, kind of led this wave in, in the 2000s of, like, character actors who ended up making a big name for themselves. Right. Like, that guy and J.K. Simmons, in my mind, are, like, the same person because they're always in supporting roles. And for a while, you're like, oh, that guy. Yeah. And then they have that one role, and you're like, oh, no, that's Paul Giamatti, or that's J.K. Don't, Simmons. Don't you forget don't it. Don't you ever mess with Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. That guy's mobbed up. You can tell the last name's oh, Giamatti. For sure. He's from Sicily. He's He is as made <laughs> as Frank Sinatra was. That's, that's right. It's Billy Bats. <laughs> All right, so, Brad, you'd seen it before. What are your impressions of the movie, you know, as you go into it this time around? What did you remember? What were you looking forward to? Yeah, so the first time I saw this, I would have been, like, 14 or 15, and... Honestly, my only memory of it was that it was boring, really? which is insane. Yeah, dude. Because I was completely wrong. You were I a dumb dumb at 14. I was a dumb dumb at 14. <laughs> but yeah, so like going into this, I remember thinking to myself that it was a really long, depressing movie about the Great Depression mm-hmm. and boxing. Yeah. And I wasn't necessarily that's, wrong. That's not far off. About the depressing Great Depression boxing yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. But this is a phenomenal it's movie. It's so good. Now that you've had another 14, 15 years of life to evaluate it, I want to hear your Brad Explains Cinderella Man. Brad Explains Cinderella Man. So 
It is based on a true story of James J. Braddock, which is a phenomenal name. What a great name. name. What yeah. a great name. So James J. Braddock was a fighter in the 20s and 30s, and he essentially was a young hotshot. He was like, you know, had won like 20, 30 fights in a row with a bunch of knockouts. He had never been knocked down, all that kind of stuff. So in essence, he was a really good fighter that eventually lost. He had a lot of injuries and the Great Depression happened. Yeah. And so the core of the movie is about his struggle to overcome not only his own injuries, but the calamity that was the Great Depression. Yeah. And it's about him trying to provide for his family. Um, There's a beautiful scene in which he promises his son, who had stolen a loaf of salami, that he would never send his kids away for any reason. Right. You know, the kid was scared that because his friend got sent away, because his parents had no money, that he was going to get sent away. And he promises him, I won't do that to you. And I think that's really at the core of this movie, is that Braddock is a man of his word. Yeah. That no matter what he puts his money behind or his, you know, name behind, he is going to do it. Absolutely. And so the the movie is really about him. And the, the best part of the movie is that he comes to represent the underdog that was the American middle and lower class that all became the lower class during the depression. Yeah. And you know, the movie, you know, when you start to look at the history of it, it does take some liberties with what actually happened, but so much of it is real. And the country really did rally behind this guy. And I always thought that this movie would make a really fascinating like companion piece with Seabiscuit because that was kind of happening at the same time. And you've got the country rallying around these underdog characters and figures you know, Braddock, the way that Ron Howard shows it is, is really smart. Uh, the movie starts with him winning a fight and, and getting a pretty good purse for it, uh, going home to his lavish mansion and kind of taking off his watch and setting his stuff down on the on the dresser, the vanity. And then the camera kind of spins around and it, it comes back around to the vanity again. And you realize you're in a different place and the vanity is like bare. Yeah. And the Great Depression has hit. Yep. And now James J. Braddock is no longer a prize fighter. He's washed up. Like he's he's injured, he's fighting with a broken hand, and Howard puts us in this movie, and we immediately get the sense this is not your average sports movie. Right. It's not even like your standard underdog fighting against the odds movie. Howard plops us down in the reality of the Great Depression, and this movie does not let up for like an hour and a half. It gets unremittingly sad for a while. If I ever wanted to explain the Great Depression to someone through a movie, this would be a movie I would show them. Yeah. I mean, it it jumps into the harsh realities of what faced Americans in that time better than almost any movie I've ever seen of this period. Yeah, and I mean, like like I said, Howard kind of gets his claws into you with this movie, and I found myself like tearing up at numerous scenes in the first half before you really even get to like the central conflict of the movie. The scene you talked about where uh, Braddock's son steals oh, like a salami. That first of all, the kid actor. On the street crying and and Russell Crowe kind of breaking down and telling him, like, I'm never going to give you away. You get this sense of a dad who's so dedicated, but in the face of honestly not knowing whether or not he's going to be able to live up to that promise. Monty Johnson had to go away to Delaware to live with his uncle. Why? His parents didn't have enough money for them to eat. Yeah, well, things ain't easy at the moment, Jay. You're right. There's a lot of people worse off than what we are. And just because things ain't easy, that don't give you the excuse to take what's not yours, does it? That's stealing, right? We don't steal. No matter what happens, we don't steal. 
Not ever. You got me? Are you giving me your word? Yes. Go on. I promise. And I promise you, we will never send you away. Yeah, a little scared, I understand. Okay. And I want to talk for a second about Renee Zellweger's performance, because she's an actress that seems like she's kind of fallen on hard times in the last few years. But this was like at the peak of her powers. She had just right. won an Oscar. And, and here she is in this movie. And in her first scene, I hadn't remembered it, but it was like a really badly written scene. It, like He gets home from his fight and they go kind of out in the garden in their house and she's giving all this exposition. She's kissing him and saying like, you're James J. Braddock, the bulldog of Bergen. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is terrible dialogue. But then Zellweger takes ownership over this role. And what I love about what Ron Howard does is everything that you're seeing Braddock do, they cut back to the home front. Right. And you're like plopped down with Renee Zellweger and these three kids and you're watching her daily struggles to keep her kids from getting sick and dying, to feed them. You know, she's watching on the street as husbands are like abandoning their families and you you get the sense of her nervousness, her anxiety, and you're really in her corner as well. Like there are moments where Braddock, James Braddock is reacting in ways that she thinks he's going to leave the family and you really feel for her. Yeah. What'd you think of her performance? I really loved Renee Zellweger's performance in this. Yeah. And the thing is, I actually am not sure if I really like her a ton as an actress she always comes across as kind of whiny to hmm. me. Hmm. I feel like just in a lot of her her films, she's always just kind of, I, I don't know. Yeah. Not her biggest fan. Sure. But I thought she was extremely sincere in this movie. Oh, absolutely. And, like, and that's something that as we've reviewed these movies, I've never realized how much I appreciate sincerity in an actor hmm. when they portray their roles as much as I have over these past few months and realizing that like when an actor or actress is able to bring across sincerity in their role, whether they're expressing anger or love or happiness or sadness. For me, it's how sincerely are they making me, how much can they make me believe in them? So I loved, I loved Renee's performance in this. I thought that she was very convincing. I thought that I think, I think the path they could have gone down was of her just being the demanding shrew at home that yeah. won't let you know Braddock fulfill his destiny. And I think that they didn't do that mainly because you saw the difficulties that she faced. Yeah. And if they didn't spend time with her character and with the children, you know, like you said, collecting wood, stealing wood from a sign to fuel their fire, yep. and she watches a husband leaving his wife while she's doing this, yeah. like you wouldn't understand her point of view if they didn't spend time with her. Absolutely. And I thought that th- that she she performed well. I thought that Ron Howard used her well. Yep. Other than that opening script, which I agree was a little cheesy, I thought the script writers treated her well. Yeah, and, and it's rare for, you know, even today, for a woman to get a part where she really is treated as equal screen time and and the equal in terms of us as an audience respecting her character. Yeah. And you know, there were scenes where... I'm with her with the anxiety of not knowing what Braddock's going to do next. You know, there is a scene where he just walks out the door without talking to her because he finds out that she sent their kids away, which yep. was the promise he made his son he'd never do. And she's 
Jimmy, where are you going? She's and, losing it. Yeah, and you're with her. And Brad, you know, you, you made a point about the script having some deficiencies, and I saw that too, you know, particularly in that opening scene. But I do have to give some credit because even that opening scene with Renee Zellweger, it comes back at the end, yep. right before he's about to fight Max Bayer. Yep. She comes into the locker room and, and you know, hugs him and embraces him and says, like, you're James J. Braddock, you're the bulldog of Bergen. And it's the cheesiest line, but at that point in the movie, it gets you. She says, like, and you're the champion of my heart. Ooh. And, oh, dude, I lost it. I was yeah. like, just in, in immediate tears. Like, this movie had me emotionally from the get-go. And I think you have to give Ron Howard credit for keeping us with Braddock on this journey the whole way through the movie. Yeah, and I even, I love how Braddock interacts with her. That when they're at the Ritz, I'm, I'm just going to say the Ritz-Carlton having dinner, that the promoter paid for him to go to and Bear is there and they get into a little verbal sparring right. match and she ends up throwing the drink in his face and he and Bear goes, ah, he's got his wife doing the fighting for him too. And Russell Crowe just goes, she's doing a hell of a job, isn't she? Yeah, right, like, right. I just, I absolutely love that. Yeah. That there's something about the writing for her character that is spot on. Yep. Now, again, the, I do think that there are some areas in the script that it, could have used some work. And the big one for me is the character of Braddock's friend, Mike Wilson, yes. the guy who works on the docks with him. If you research it out, you find out that Mike Wilson wasn't a real person. He was kind of like a, a combination of people that Braddock knew that they invented a character. Yeah. And he comes across as like this really stereotypical, we're going to unionize, like kind of a communist. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes across as like the movie's just Con, like condemning communism because Braddock's like, no, FDR is going to do this and this. Right. And I feel like those scenes with Mike really pulled me out of what the movie was trying to accomplish. I yeah. know Ron Howard was trying to bring in some like Great Depression context. Right. But like it's so cliched and so obvious that yeah. I didn't I didn't care for that character at all. I, I struggled with his character. It He just didn't feel well thought out. No, that, that was the big thing. Now, I will say. It did lead to one of the most uh, moving parts of the film when he's in the shanty town sure. in Hooverville. Sure. And not even when he sees Mike on the ground and he dies. For me, it was honestly just seeing that shanty town. Because, like, I remember as a kid in, like, you know, fourth or fifth grade American history class, yep. and you're learning about the Great Depression, and they're like, oh, the I remember learning about there was these shanty towns yep. called Hooverville. Yeah. That's what they would call them because of President Hoover. Right. And in your head, you're like, oh, it's just like a bunch of tents set up and ramshackle things. And you don't realize how terrible those places were to live. Yeah. And even when the there's one quick line that I think Braddock says, it, it, Braddock does say it when they're promoting the fight with Max Bear and the interview, they're interviewing him. And he says, you know, these people are living in living in tents. Right. Just to save on rent. Right. Or they're, li they're living behind cardboard just to save on rent. Yeah. And there's something about that where I'm like, as a 14 or 15-year-old, I would not have understood that. But now as a 28-year-old man who has paid rent <laughs> and exorbitant rent prices out in places like Boston or Philadelphia, yep. all of a sudden you start to realize, man, like, what would happen if I lost all of my money? Yeah. And not only I lost all of my money, but the majority of Americans lost all their money into the stock market. Yeah. Like, that is a truly terrifying thought that you can't appreciate necessarily when you're younger, but as you grow older and you, you gain more life experiences, you appreciate not only not only the shantytown part of the movie, but you appreciate the story of James J. Braddock yeah. so much more. Definitely. So why don't we 
Why don't we take a second then and talk about Braddock himself as portrayed in this movie by Russell Crowe? I mean, Russell Crowe kind of owned the early 2000s. He won an Oscar for Gladiator. Um, he was nominated the year after that for A Beautiful Mind, the Ron Howard film. I was literally, that was a question I had going to this. I wanted to know if A Beautiful Mind was also a Ron Howard film. It, it was, yeah. Because they feel so similar to me. Interesting. Just like in terms of how they're paced or... Yeah, the pacing, the film style, the music. Mm. Do you know if it was the same? I'd have to look it I up. I don't think it was the same composer. Okay. It, you know, the funny thing is uh, the composer for... The, we're off track already on Russell Crowe, but like hey, the man. composer for this movie uh, was Thomas Newman, the guy who did the soundtrack for American Beauty. And in that episode, we talked about how all of his soundtracks kind of sound the same. Yeah, you're right. And there's moments in this soundtrack where I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like Road to Perdition. That sounds like Finding Nemo. So uh, it's funny that you bring that up. But uh, back to Russell Crowe then. What what were your impressions of Russell Crowe's performance in this movie? The reason I kind of brought up A Beautiful Mind, there was a few moments in this movie where I felt like I was looking at John Nash and not James J. Braddock. And that's that's more on me probably because A Beautiful Mind, probably because I would put A Beautiful Mind probably in like the 8 to 12 range of my top movies. Really? All time? I love A Beautiful Mind. In terms of just like favorite movies or like best you've ever seen? Favorite movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I, I do think it's a well-made movie for sure. I was going to say, even beyond it being one of my favorites, I think it's a really well-made movie. Yeah, definitely. But there's a few spots in Cinderella Man where the way that Russell Crowe would deliver a line or especially like the way he would stand just screamed John Nash to me. And so that that took me out of it a little bit. But like I said, that that might just be me because I've seen A Beautiful Mind probably eight or nine times. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and one of the things that took it out, took me out of the movie was that Russell Crowe's like New Jersey accent goes yeah. in and out. And when it's in, it's like the most stereotypical. I'm James J. Brad. Like he he was, <laughs> he was like doing a James Cagney. <laughs> the like bulldog a burger. Yeah, yeah. It was it was ridiculous. Yeah. And yet the stuff that matters about his performance is like it's how vulnerable and hurt he is as a man. Yep. And you start, you you get a peek behind the curtain. I think Russell Crowe does such a good job of showing you how broken he is by the circumstances that he's in that you really do just kind of forgive the the other stuff about the performance. It's the, a great performance. The low point of the movie when he goes to the boxing association yes. and asks for money. Let's talk about that scene because that's on that's on my list of scenes that are standouts. Yes. So he finally gets so fed up. You know, his kids are gone. They don't have any electric in the house. He leaves the house with his wife chasing him out of the house. He hops on the ferry and he goes to New York. Now, he has been um, he's been banned from boxing because, you know, he was fighting hurt and he had so many. His license was revoked. Yeah, they revoked his license because he had so many no decision fights. And so he has no way of making a living aside from working the docks. He goes to New York and goes to Madison Square Garden goes up to the room where all of the promoters and agents are just hanging out hat in hand, literally to beg them to give him money so that he can turn the electricity back on at home. It's a heartbreaking scene. And I mean, like it's very clear. This is the last thing he wants to be doing. I think that Ron Howard was trying to be obvious about it, but I thought it worked and how like these were just fat cats. Yeah. You know what I mean? That they're just like, 
instead of playing cards, they could have just been sitting there like counting stacks of money. You, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Right. Like that's kind of how they came across. And that's kind of Ron Howard's thing though. Like he, he's not a subtle director at no. all. You know, the very first scene after we talked about like the camera swooping around and showing the vanity being bare, Russell Crowe like walks out into the great depression night right. and he walks past a carload of people that there's kids running out, stealing stuff off the street and you hear a voice from inside the car and it's like a mom saying like, come back into the car so we can get some sleep. And it's he walks over a newspaper that says record unemployment. It's it's very obvious. Yeah. It's very on the nose. Yeah. And yet for some reason in this movie, it works so well. It does. I don't know if it would work in other contexts, but for this specific story, I feel like almost every beat that Ron Howard hits works. Yeah. And in a similar fashion, we talked about this a lot in the in our review of the movie Green Book that he's a very show don't tell type of director yeah. where he just shows. And I think the the thing that we're kind of complaining about here is that they're showing too much in a sense. But in the end, every single thing you see in a movie was chosen. Yeah. There are no accidents. Yeah. Everything was chosen to be shown. So right. we're, maybe we're just nitpicking over how much they decided to hone in on a certain aspect of something. That might be fair. And and again, to be fair, I think Ron Howard is an underrated filmmaker in general. And we're going to get into this after the break. But there are moments in this movie, too where he does pull back and it's super effective. I'm thinking particularly of the scene where, you know, as the movie goes on, Russell Crowe gets, a, he gets a fight from Paul Giamatti, his agent, his manager. Um, and he wins. He's not expected to win. And he beats the guy. That's like the number two contender. It's Corn Davis, Corn Griffin, Corn Griffin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he works his way back up through the ranks, beating heavyweight contenders. And eventually he has to face the champ, Max bear. And before the Max bear fight, they call Braddock and, and Paul Giamatti's character into the commissioner's office and they show Such him a good scene. A, they show him a film reel of Max Bear killing a man in the ring. And Ron Howard does this brilliant thing where there's no music, there's no dialogue, there is only the sound of the film projector running. You see that combination? Campbell didn't go down on the first punch with a tough guy. Second one killed him on the spot. Just cut it off, will you? The autopsy said that his brain was knocked loose from the connecting tissue. Consider your ass fully covered, okay? Run it again. And it is such a brilliant touch because it's this unsettling silence with the mechanical sound of the film reel. And it really throw like it puts you on the edge of your seat as a viewer and it gives you that sense of dread that he's going for. But it's not showy. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. There's something mechanical about the sound of the projector running. Yeah, that that almost transplants onto the coldness of Max Bear as he just dismantles this opponent and kills him. Right. That scene is so well done. And it, it makes me think about another thing we haven't talked about yet. I think my favorite performance from this movie, and that was probably Paul Giamatti. Second favorite <laughs> performance from this movie was the boxing promoter. Like the commissioner the, guy? Yeah, the commissioner guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, well, he's not a commissioner. He He's the main promoter oh, okay. for, the, for New York City or gotcha. for that area, something like that. 
His performance was so good. Yeah. I loved everything about him. And here's the thing where the script actually does succeed is that even the quote unquote bad guys in this movie, they all have reasons for what they're doing. I mean, the scene where where the electric guy comes to the uh. house to turn off the Braddock family's electricity, they even give that guy a motivation. He's like, look, I have kids. And you get it because it's the Great Depression. They've already let go of two guys. Yeah, absolutely. The only place that I have a complaint, and I do think with that promoter or commissioner, whatever he is, they even give him, you understand where he's coming from. He's yep. like, I have a heart for my family. I don't have a heart for the guys in the ring. That's my job. It's my business. Yep. The only person in the whole movie that they don't flesh out is Max Bear. Yeah. And apparently Max Bear's family was livid with the way he was portrayed in this movie because they, you know, their telling of it is that he was actually a really great guy. Yeah. And that he felt ridiculous amounts of remorse over what he did in the ring, which was to essentially kill two people. And so they, they basically argued that this script turned him into a one dimensional villain where he wasn't that. Yeah. What did you think of Bear in the movie? I thought that he, I mean, he was built for Russell Crowe to bounce off, off of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he was the antagonist that wasn't there to be fleshed out in his own right. The only reason he was there was as a foil to Russell Crowe. Right. Which has to be a one-dimensional character. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to bounce off something that's going to keep changing and fleshing out. Yeah. And he doesn't have enough screen time to really be a two- or three- or four-dimensional character. You know, the thing is, he's really cocky. Yeah. And he's presented as being a, a generally bad guy. Right. But then, even then, he... He pulls Russell Crowe's character aside and even says, look, man, I I genuinely think you're a good guy and I don't want to hurt you. Right. And I think that if you fight me in the ring, I'm probably going to kill you. And it it's hard, though, because his character publicly was like, hey, I'm going to bang your wife. Yeah. But then he privately pulls him aside and is like, you know, hey, you're a good guy. I'm not I don't want to hurt you. Yeah. But I'm going to if you get in the ring with me. You can't really get a good read on him. Yeah, you can't get a good read on him. And even at the end of the at the end of the match. He like goes over and he doesn't shake Russell Crowe's hand, but like he like gives he acknowledges him, the, him. Yeah, he acknowledges the fight, which which doesn't fit with the is your wife you know going to be warm at night after I kill you? Yeah, yeah. Like so, I I feel like they enhanced his bad villainy side much more so than they needed because I liked the humanizing side that they gave him, but it, it contrasted too much with the villainy side where I'm like, if he was that much of a bad person. He wouldn't be a good person in any situation. Right, right. Well, Brad, all this talk of mechanical sounds has got me thinking about our transition sound with this film projector and ice cubes clinking. I think that it is time for us to try some ancient, ancient age. What do you, you think? You told me that we're drinking this and I'm like, what the heck is ancient, <laughs> is ancient, ancient age? That, sound, that doesn't sound like any whiskey or bourbon I've ever heard of. My friend, you are about to find out. Let's, Let's do get it. to it. All right, so today we are checking out Ancient Ancient Age 10 Star. It wasn't good enough to just throw two ancients on the front of it. They had to add 10 stars at the end. You kind of sounded like Peter Griffin there. 10 Star! 10 Star! <laughs> All right, so uh, Ancient Age is a brand that is produced by Buffalo Trace Distillery. It's a very cheap, inexpensive bottom shelf whiskey. That I've been told is pretty good for what it is. That's interesting because I actually did the Buffalo Trace tour and I don't remember them talking about it. Well, there you go. Huh. It's like one of their lower tier ones. Okay. But they have, so they have ancient age and then they have the next step up, which is ancient, ancient age. Don't you think they should have called it ancienter? 
age. And then they're going to come out with one in a few years called Ancient Test Age. <laughs> so Ancient Age, I'm sorry, Ancient Ancient Age. There we go. It has a uh, an age statement on the bottle. It says aged at least 36 months. So the youngest bourbon in this is at least three years old. So it's it's more than enough to earn the Kentucky Straight Bourbon Certification. It's very, very inexpensive. A fifth of it in the state of Ohio will run you exactly $14.99. Oh, that's nothing. So I went down to my local liquor store. Actually, I correction, a liter of it will cost $14.99. They don't even sell it in fifths in the state of Ohio. Huh. So I went down to my local liquor store and asked them for a liter, and they said, we don't carry the liter. We only carry the half gallon. Did you the, just say a half gallon? That's what they whiskey? call it. It's 1.75. That's the biggest size they sell. But it general jargon is it's a half gallon. Huh. And that was twenty four ninety nine. I just had an image of you walking out with like a jug of milk full a jug of whiskey. Of milk full of whiskey. <laughs> so twenty four ninety nine for the one point seven five, um, which is super inexpensive. It is part of the plastic cap club. You know, you you Ooh. twist it off. Oh yeah, and it's even got one of those nice little pour aids in in the thing. To, <laughs> those are handy. <laughs> it's really nice, man. But I have heard really good things about it for being a cheaper bourbon. So Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this bad boy? Man, it's amazing how you can smell the cheapness of a whiskey. <laughs> no, I'm I'm totally kidding. I think that I get really light caramel notes. Yeah, it's definitely got some of those strong. classic notes, but it is under like layers of a sort of like acetone. Yeah. The ethanol's jumping off this bad boy. I'm getting I'm still getting a lot of fruit on this. Like I'm picking up some notes of apple on this. I get a lot of like a green apple, a sour apple note to this. I can see that. But I don't think it's going to have that sort of sour, bitter taste to it. Um, If you had to give a score to the nose, what would you give it? You know, it's not standing out to me as anything strong. I'm going to give it a five. Five. Okay. Right in the middle. You know, I'll probably give it about a six. Uh, It is pleasant. I really do like it when I can detect that note of apple. Yeah. So let's give it a taste. That's not bad. I uh, I actually picked up a lot of that apple flavor on the front of my, my mouth. Um, it's got a little bit of a burn to it, that alcohol burn, and it gives you that nice Kentucky hug going down, too. Um, it's not spicy as much as it is an ethanol burn in your mouth. I, I need to take another sip of it. I, was, I wasn't breathing as I took a sip, but right before it entered my mouth... Mm. I just had this rush of ethanol up my nose that ruined the entire That's not good. tasting. That's not good. So let me try it again. <laughs> so Brad, uh, now on your second tasting of it, what are you picking up and what do you like, dislike about it? I can almost get like some more savory notes, almost like a cinnamony, brown mm. sugar type of... Baking spices. Yeah, yeah, kind of a baking spice to it. It's... It, I don't want to say earthy, but it, but it kind of has a boldness to it. Sure. With those that I like. I, I I'm having it. a hard time like divorcing the green apple thing. And, you know, it's one of those things where like once you pick up on it, it's the only thing you can detect. I have one note throughout this whole thing and it is green apple. And I even on the finish, I have this this kind of tart fruit flavor to it um, that I just can't shake. I'm, I'm, I'm even now I'm trying to pick up cinnamon and I'm not getting it. Yeah, I I noticed for me on the on the taste, I felt like I got some of those notes, but the finish was definitely the word you use tart is perfect. Yeah, it, it has a very tart finish, and I don't know if that's a good. Yeah, good I do thing. get a little bit of like a uh, like the tannin from the bear. Like it tastes like wood a little bit, uh, and not the char. It tastes like 
oak. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I totally get what you mean. What would you give the taste? I'm going to give it a six and a half. Yeah, I, I'm i okay giving it a six. Yeah. yeah this is this is a, a pretty decent tasting whiskey. Right. Finish. Finish. I'm going to go a little bit lower. I'm going to go with a four. Yeah, I think I would go five. It, it, it's kind of bitter. It doesn't have a pleasant yeah. aftertaste. Um, it's not. It doesn't burn too badly. Right. Um, it's not all the way unpleasant, but it doesn't leave the sweeter, more vanilla caramel notes in your mouth as much as it leaves that oaky. Right. Yeah. All right. And then uh, overall balance, Brad. I'm going to stick it a four. I, really? Yeah. I think it just because the nose is just kind of average. The taste is decent, but it changes throughout. The nose leads me to a different taste, which yeah. leads me to a different finish. Yep. I, I'm struggling with the balance. I'm going to go ahead and give this a seven. And part of that is going to spill into my value score as well. But this is remarkably well balanced for a bourbon that would cost you, if you could buy it in a fifth, $10 or less. Right. Like, this costs less than Benchmark. Yeah. And I would prefer this over Benchmark just in terms of the way that it, it it's balanced out throughout. Right. You know, like I said, it has that one note for me. But the fact that I could detect that note at every stage of drinking this... I think says a lot for it. I'm going to give it a seven on balance. Okay. Well, what, where would that take you on value then? I don't know that I've had a better whiskey for the price point, except maybe Heaven Hill Green Label. Yeah. And I will say this. I would choose Heaven Hill Green Label over this a hundred times out of a hundred. Right. But I got a half gallon of this, Brad, for yeah. like $25. If, if I needed a mixer, if I needed something to keep my friends at a party satisfied because they don't, you know... They don't want me to pull out the good stuff. This is, it's drinkable. It's palatable. It's half gallonable. It's, it's half gallonable. <laughs> I would probably give this an eight and a half on value. I'm going to give it a seven on value. I, I think it's really good. Yeah. But for me, knowing that Heaven Hill Green Label is out there. Oh, for sure. At a similar price point. Yeah. Keeps me from going quite as high. So what are you coming out to out of 50, Brad? 26.5. I came out to a 32.5. Wow. Right, which is higher than I expected it to be. And it puts us out at an average of a 29 and a half. I think that's pretty good for where this is. I mean, we're we're at the 60% mark, essentially. Yeah. And I think that's nothing to, to be ashamed of for what's essentially a $9, $10 bourbon. See, the thing for me, though, is you say that it is a $9, $10 bourbon. Yeah. But the fact that you can only get it in... The half gallon. Well, you can get it in a liter, just okay. not at the store I went to. Uh, the okay. liter was fourteen ninety nine. Okay, and I still think that's a really good bargain. Yeah, it's a good bargain at any quantity. Right. Um, but especially if you can find it in a fifth. Yeah. Go for, for it. sure. Drop nine dollars on it. Yeah, if you can find this at at the price point that you're willing to pay, get it. It it's decent. I think what Bob said is the best. It's either a good mixer or it's something good for when you just need a, a filler drink. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so that has been Ancient Ancient Age 10 Star. Now let's go back to this ancient, ancient film. <laughs> Cinderella Man. Cinderella Man. So that was Ancient Ancient Age 10 Star. Ancienter 10 Star. <laughs> the most ancientest of ages. <laughs> 10 Star. Let's get back into talking about Cinderella Man, though. Brad... You know, we've been talking off air about how much we love Paul Giamatti in this movie. Yeah. Um, I think that he was like at the height of his powers at this movie, you know, because he had just come off of the movie Sideways. Right. Which got nominated for Best Picture. Never um, heard of 
Yeah. Okay. So that was 2004. And then 2005, <laughs> he comes out with Cinderella Man, gets himself an Oscar nomination. What are your thoughts on Giamatti in this movie? I think that Giamatti is a little bit one dimensional throughout the movie, mm-hmm. but it works. I, I, and unfortunately, you, you could probably say that about a lot of supporting characters because they aren't given the screen time to really change and grow. But man, Paul Giamatti just takes this role. And once again, it's the sincerity of the of the performance that I just I believe wholeheartedly that Joe Gould, Giamatti's yeah, yeah. character, absolutely would do anything for his fighter. Legitimately cares about Braddock. Yeah. yeah. And the man, the scene when May Renee Zellweger goes over to their yeah, house and yeah. he's she's calling him a leech and a roach and all these things and and he and he sighs and and you think that he's upset that he has to see her because they set it up at the start of the movie when Russell Crowe says, well, "Why don't you? You haven't seen you know the kids haven't seen their Uncle Joe in forever." And he right. goes, "Are you still married to the same woman?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it kind of sets this up that like Giamatti just doesn't like May. And so then later in the movie, when when May is at his door and yelling at him and he's you see him like it's a close up of his face in the door and and he looks through the the peephole and and he sighs and you think he's just kind of like, oh, man, like I finally got Russell Crowe back and we're winning and we're doing well. And this broad is about to screw everything up. But then he opens the door and you realize that he's sighing because he is putting everything of his own on the line. Yeah. For this family. Well, and it's not just that. It's so you see Joe Gould at the back of the room when Russell Crowe is at his most desperate and he goes and begs for money from all of the managers and promoters. And then later in the movie, you find out that like he's living in this lavish apartment that has no furniture. And the way I read that is he knows that he has to keep up appearances to keep getting fights booked. Like he can't be destitute the way Russell Crowe's destitute. So he's putting all his money essentially into just paying rent and they're living with like folding chairs and yep. no furniture because he knows what he has to do to get by. And it solidifies this idea right. that everyone in the Great Depression is doing what they have to do to get by. Yep. And it doesn't it doesn't matter if you're like at the lowest end of poverty the way Braddock is or if you look like you're, you know, in the money like Joe Gould is. Everyone's doing what they got to do, you know, just to scrape by. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that Giamatti's role was written well for him. The scene right before the bear fight at the end of the movie, when he is whistling Danny Boy. <laughs> I mean, I almost started like tearing up. It was just, I don't know, he's just laying there on the table and he you just feel that sense of relief like we made it. So that's really funny that you read that scene that way because... You know, when when Braddock gets his fight with Corn Griffin, the one that gets him back into boxing, he, he looks at Russell Crowe before the fight. and He's like, you're weirding me out. Like, why are you so loosey goosey right now? And Russell Crowe basically says, look, we all know why I'm here. Yeah, like, I'm a piece of meat, but I get to say goodbye to the garden and it's going to be fun. And then he wins. And all through these wins, everyone's loose. And then you get to bear. And even as an audience member, you are on the edge of your seat because you're like, what's going to happen to this poor guy? I just watched Million Dollar Baby a few months ago. <laughs> right. What's what, going to happen? What's going to happen? Yeah. And I read that as Gould trying to play Lucy Goosey to calm Russell Crowe's nerves down. Oh, really? You know what I mean? I, I saw it as like, I'm going to whistle Danny Boy and and act like nothing's wrong. And I think part of it, too, is that wonderful sense of humor that the script gives him because yeah. he's real morbid. 
Right. And he makes really inappropriate jokes. And Danny Boy is the song that you sing when you're at an Irish wake and someone's going to die. Right. Or has died. Right. And so he's whistling that for Jim Braddock, like as a way of saying like, oh, you're about to go get killed. So I kind of read it more as like he's putting on this front that everything's cool, even though he's just as nervous as Braddock is that everything's about to go south real fast. Oh, I definitely read it more as a we made it like we're here. Huh. This is like this is more than we ever could have hoped and dreamed for. Yeah. But I do see what you're saying that there is that nervousness that you have throughout the whole film of like, well, not the whole film, but the last 10, 20 minutes of like, what is going to happen yeah. when he fights Bear? And I think it's important that we get into what happens when he fights Bear. So he gets in the ring against Max Bear. I'm going to make a bold statement. Please. I would put this up there as one of the best filmed boxing sequences oh, absolutely. of all time. The wonderful thing that Howard does, you know, and his editor is, you know, they're cutting back and forth between what's happening in the ring and Braddock's family listening to the fight, uh, the people in the church listening to the fight. Oh, man. But it builds in intensity from round to round. Yep. And my favorite point of the whole thing, and I can't pinpoint it exactly, but you know it when you see it, there's about a minute left in the fight. Right. And they're cut, they've cut away to Renee Zellweger and the kids listening to the fight. And the announcer says, one minute left. And they cut back in the ring, and the camera is underneath both fighters yeah. looking up at them. Yes. And they're punching each other so fast that yes. it is like it cuts to a barrage of punches. And the way this movie is filmed, you feel every single punch that lands in every fight of this movie. There's actually this one brilliant thing that Howard does where uh, somebody gets hit at one point mm-hmm. and you see like a camera flash happen and yeah. they kind of superimpose a bit of a skeleton over that person. The ribs crack. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Braddock when his ribs crack. It's these nice little touches. And like we said, Howard's not a subtle director. Right. But... In this movie, he's using those powers for good. You know what I mean? He knows when to do that kind of stuff. I I think the thing for me that I loved about the fast paced of the final few minutes of the fight is the fact that this really is a slower movie. It's not not as slow as something that's like poorly filmed like Goodfellas, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's not slow boring. It's not slow boring, but it is a slower film. Sure. Which serves as a counter to enhance the final fight when things are super fast paced. Yeah. Even the earlier fights in the movie, there's probably what, four fights in the movie, five maybe. Yeah, I would say so. Even the earlier fights in the movie aren't that fast paced. No. Like they're well filmed and well played out, but they're not super fast paced. Man, this fight with Bear, it, it starts off a little bit slow with Bear messing with Russell Crowe and it just it, it, it gets to this fever pitch. Yeah. That you're just like, I don't know if I can handle any more of this. Yeah. Like, it almost fe- feels like a Tarantino film of like, what is even happening? This is moving so fast and so many things are happening. Yeah. Like, and it was beautiful. The, it really The is. final fight sequence, I would put it up there with the Drago sequence. With, like, <laughs> Rocky Four, Dude, Rocky If four. I can change, you can change. <laughs> we can all change. <laughs> so I, I'm glad you brought up Rocky because when I think boxing movies, you know, the one that has America's heart is always going to be Rocky. For sure. He is in the pro boxing hall of fame. Right. And he wasn't a real person. Part of me wonders if this isn't a better movie than Rocky though. Yeah. So I wonder about Cinderella man. And you know, it's just, it's so funny. This movie's all about an underdog who's counted out. And I feel like this movie is one of the best sports films I've ever seen. And yet when you ask somebody like everyone I have ever met that's seen it, loves it. But when you say like best sports movie ever, this is never in the conversation. And I think that this movie never really stood a chance because when it gets released in 05, Russell Crowe has just been arrested because he 
assaulted a hotel clerk. I don't know if you remember this yep. story. He yep. threw a phone at his face. He was charged with like a second degree felony. It was like serious, serious stuff. And this movie came out right then. Yeah. And it tanked. Like this was not a successful movie. Huh. And, you know, it ended up not getting the Oscar nominations. And I really think that that incident with Russell Crowe is what caused it to not be more of a contender that year. But I think also it's that we do not appreciate Ron Howard as a director the way that we should. Literally, whenever I think about Ron Howard, I think of like a junior director, which is funny because, I mean, he's directed probably 30 movies now. Yeah, he's won an Oscar. I mean, like I look back at a movie like Apollo 13. That is a nearly perfect movie. The suspense is killer. Yep. A Beautiful Mind, fantastic movie. Cinderella Man, I would put right up there with our best sports movies. I think a lot of times people look at Howard and they see a Spielberg knockoff. But I look at Ron Howard and I think that he does something as well or even better than Spielberg. Spielberg really likes human interest stories. Yeah. Like Schindler's List, you know, even recently like Bridge of Spies. But in Spielberg's movies... The characters are always doing something on a big scale. Right. Oscar Schindler saves whatever it is, 1,100 Jews. Yeah. You know, uh, Tom Hanks's character in Bridge of Spies gets Gary Powers back, you know, from the clutches of the communists. Right. In Ron Howard's movies, James J. Braddock does not fix the Great Depression. Right. He's just a guy that's like he even says, I know what I'm fighting for this time. And the guy says, what? He says, milk. Yeah. He's literally just fighting to get food on the table. And what I love about Howard's movies is that they're just as sappy. They're just as sentimental as a Spielberg movie. But I identify with them even more sometimes. Yeah. Because I'm not the guy that is going to fix an issue as big as what Spielberg deals with. But I can identify with a guy that's fighting for the four people that live in his house with him. So you just remember who you are. You're the bulldog, Birkin. And the pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope. And you're your kid's a hero. And you are the champion of my heart, James J. Beck. You know, you better go home. You know, uh, <clears throat> boxers hang around places like this, and you don't get tangled up in that kind of crowd. Nice girl like you. I'll see you at home. Please, Jimmy. I'll see you at home. Yeah, for sure. I think there's something cool, too, that we see about Howard, that he really captured the essence of how people in the Great Depression would latch on to hope. Even if that hope wasn't anything in their own hometown or their own area, that you said it earlier, something like Seabiscuit or, you know, James J. Braddock, to be able to latch onto that hope and and attach their own lives' hope to it, he just captures that so incredibly well in this movie. It, it truly was amazing. So let's quantify it then. All right. All right Brad, what, what kind of a score would you give this movie? Nine and a half. I'm right there with you. I like, like I said, going into this movie, the only real memory of it that I had was that it was kind of boring. Hmm. But I think that as an adult, I'm able to appreciate the themes of poverty, of desperation, of that desire to protect your family that I just, I mean, I don't even have a kid yet, but you're, you're a dad. Yeah. Like you would do anything for your kid. Yeah. Yeah. Like, 
And so there's something about this movie that just, it's not just a sports movie. I think it truly captures the essence of why sports are important That's exactly in America. what makes it a great sports movie, is it's about what the stories we latch onto. You know, sports are about the narrative. It's not just about Notre Dame is a great football team. It's right. Rudy was the nobody that made a tackle when he wasn't supposed to. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he gets a yes. sack and he wasn't supposed to. Well, and even think about real life stories. Well, and the thing about it is like it's the narrative behind it. Right. You know what I mean? And when you look at Cinderella Man, when you look at a movie like even Seabiscuit, it's about how those figures gave people hope. Remember the Titans. Exactly. Yeah. So not only is this one of the best sports movies ever, but I think this is a genuinely great film that has been overlooked. I'm going to give it a nine and a half. Brad gives it a nine and a half. Would you recommend? 100%. I mean, come on. Yeah. But we want to know what you think. So hit us up on social media. Brad, where can they find us? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Film Whiskey. At Film Whiskey. Or you could give us a call. Leave us a voicemail on our call-in line, and we'll play it on air. The number is 216-800-5923. That's 216-800-5923. We'll be back next week talking about the 1952 classic, Singing in the Rain. What a great... Ever since we did an American in Paris... I've been looking forward to doing Singing in the Rain. Yeah, I can't wait to compare the two. Join us next week for Singing in the Rain. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. In 2005, director Ron Howard and star Russell Crowe gave the world an uplifting biopic about boxing most... <laughs> boxing? <laughs> Sandy, oh my god! <laughs> boxing! About boxing's most tenacious fighter. I don't think I can cut out my ridiculous John Travolta. Ooh. Oh my god! Oh my god! Sandy! Alright, go ahead.